Want to know what's coming up on today's episode? Here's a preview. They've done some of the most meticulous work, and they continue to in this area, uh, studying meetings under up to quintuple-blinded protocols, and have generated results that basically she can make the statement that under con controlled conditions without any sensory cues at all, MEBs have demonstrated the ability to share pertinent, specific information about discarnate individuals. So she's talking in science speak there, <laughs> but I think that conveys the message that she found compelling evidence that, that it works. Before we dive into today's episode, I want you to take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. Feel a massive waterfall of unconditional love surrounding you in all directions and filling you. That's your angels making their presence known. Your angels want you to ask for what you want and for their help. And know you are always held. Friends, if you need help holding oneness energy, the highest vibration that is, I'm hosting a three-week live oneness course starting March 1st. Register today at theangelmedium.com backslash shop. Or if you're ready to develop your gifts of mediumship, bringing through angel messages and energy healing all at once, sign up for my Angel Reiki School today at theangelmedium.com. Now, know that whatever resonates with you in today's episode is a message just for you from your angels. Hello, beautiful souls. Welcome back to the Angels and Awakening podcast. I'm your host and author, Julie Jancis. And friends, we have a very special guest here today. His name is Mark Ireland. He wrote the new book, The Persistence of the Soul. And Mark has been around mediumship and this world for a lot longer than I think any other guest that we have ever had on in over 500 episodes. His dad, you might have heard of him, uh, was Dr. Richard Ireland, who Mark got to meet through his dad being a medium, Mae West. And when the Eisenhowers were in the presidency, his dad was doing readings for them. Um, Mark has gone on to do a lot of scientific research or be part of scientific studies and really look at um, the science behind mediumship. So I'm very excited to have you on today, Mark. Thank you so much for being here and all the work that you do in the world. Well, I really appreciate the invite. So thank you for having me. Of course. So your new book, um, The Persistence of the Soul. There we go. Perfect. Yes. You really kind of dig into the science behind mediumship. And I wonder if you can kind of talk to us about some of those studies that you've been a sitter for and what those are like and what people are finding in their research. This book really is almost like two books in one, because what I do in the book is explain my own personal experiences um, with the unexpected passing of my youngest son, who was 18 at the time, that kind of thrust me back into my dad's world. And before that, I was in a business corporate career, kind of like you were, you know, cruising along, trying to get advanced and looking at the money and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it kind of got yanked back into like what's more important. And uh, so that's what thrust me back into my dad's um, 
field. And along the way, I did meet a lot of top mediums and researchers. Some of this was not, I would describe it as very synchronistic. I'll give you an example. So like this happened three weeks after my son Brandon passed. I was watching a news excerpt on the Channel 12 Phoenix uh, NBC affiliate station. And uh, they were showing about some research being done at the University of Arizona at the time involving sitters um, that were separated from the medium and the medium had to give a reading to those folks and then they debrief with the sitters afterwards. So actually the medium in this case was Alison Dubois before she got big from the hit network show Medium and she was reading for these people and I was really impressed because she was giving highly specific information and it just seemed effortless for her and at the end they debriefed and virtually you know they touched on all the stuff and it appeared to be all right on, right on the money. And I thought to myself, wow, I'd love to, um, I'd love to have a reading from her someday. And I'd love to be in that lab. And little did I know both things would subsequently happen. But where the first piece of synchronicity comes in, in this case was the very next day, after seeing that clip, a man from Dallas, Texas, who had known my dad named Jerry Conser calls me and he says, Hey, Mark, look, I know what you've been through. And I know someone who might be able to help you. Her name's Allison Dubois. And here's a phone number you can call to get a reading with her. So I did call, but she, even then, before the show came out, Medium, she was still very popular. I had to wait eight months, and I finally got in to see her in August. Now, without jumping back into the science research piece, I'll give you another tidbit that kind of drags on the tails of that, which was interesting. But uh, two weeks before I met with Allison, a man, a gentleman gave me a box, and inside the box was a manuscript. It was all typed eight and a half by 11 pages. It said, Your Psychic Potential, A Guide to Psychic Development by Dr. Richard Ireland, dated 1973. I'm like, what is this? He goes, well, it's a manuscript that was crafted based on the, the workshops your dad did back in the late 60s and early 70s, but he never got it published. I said, well, how did you get it? He goes, well, you were out of state at the time, so before your dad passed, he gave it to me for safekeeping. I said, that's been 12 years. Why are you giving this to me now? And he says, I don't know. I just feel like I'm supposed to. So two weeks later, I meet with Allison. One of the first things she says to me is, um, I've got your dad here. And he's showing me a book. But I think it's his book. But he's handing it to you to take forward. Does that make sense to you? I'm like, yeah, I think I get that. And I actually subsequently did get that book published back in 2011. So um, that's the back end of that story. And then it was February, the following February, that I did get into the lab. And so that was probably the first of the two times I was involved with the university doing this kind of research. And what they did was they, and Discovery Channel was there that day to record an episode of a show called One Step Beyond. And I have a clip of it too on my website if somebody wants to see it uh, at markirelandauthor.com. Anyhow, so I was seated behind this, the medium. In this case, the medium was a woman named Lori Campbell, who's based out of Southern California. And the proxy was the researcher. And they would ask questions of the medium without the medium being able to see me or directly communicate with me. They just had to say what they felt. So early on in the process, and as the, as the film's rolling, they're recording this, one of the first questions, or one of the first statements by the researcher was, now, I'm going to ask you a series of questions about the deceased or the discarnate was what the phrase that was used. And um, the person who's passed, their name is Brandon. And Brandon is the, and before the researcher could say it, Lori says, son yeah, of, of the sitter. Yes. Okay. 
what was Brandon's cause of death? Well, I haven't told you that yet, but Brandon, and this actually goes back to another story, but Brandon had been hiking on the mountains, uh, the McDowell Mountains in Scottsdale, Arizona, which were right behind our home. And we didn't really know the cause of death at first. He he was with uh, some friends. One of them noted that he had been complaining about his arms being kind of numb and his heart being rapidly. When he passed away, we didn't get any results from the autopsy. I mean, the autopsy hadn't been conducted for about a week, and the people that were there couldn't really offer anything. So, um, and I'm going back because this story kind of precedes what I was about to tell you. Sorry. So, um, my uncle had similar abilities to my father, but my father had been gone by this point in time. And I talked to my uncle the day of Brandon's passing, and he said, can I do anything for you? I just said, if you get any kind of connection or message you can share, I'd really appreciate it. Three days later, I'm in the mortuary. We connect by cell phone. And he says, uh, hey, Mark, I tried to connect last night. I got nothing. But this morning, your dad came to me. And I have communicated with him before since he's passed, but it's been quite a while. But he wanted me to let you know that he was there when Brandon passed. And he, Brandon was a little confused as to what was going on, but your dad helped him adjust. He said, Brandon wanted you to know that you're the best parents he ever could have had, which is the warm, fuzzy thing you like to hear. But then he gave me the cause of death before the autopsy. He said, Brandon's, your dad said Brandon's death was caused by a lack of ox oxygen in his bloodstream that causes heart to fail. Two days later, the autopsy physician calls me and says, your son's death was caused by a severe asthma attack that drove his blood oxygen levels down, causing cardiac arrest. So I actually got the cause of death from my uncle two days before the autopsy results were revealed to me. Now, back to the lab. <laughs> now, this is, you know, a year later, roughly, or a year and a month later, I'm in the lab, and the researcher poses the question to Lori, um, what was the cause of death? And she says, my chest, my whole chest, I feel like I have all this weight on it, and I, I feel like I can't breathe, and I feel like I want to throw up. Well, his buddy, Stu, that was with him at the time, said one of the last things Brandon did was vomit just before passing away. But the fortunate thing was he actually made light of it. He goes, oh, I think I got some in my hair. And he kind of laughed it off, which told me he wasn't didn't really realize the severity of the situation. So there was a series of questions asked to and they're in that clip if people want to see it. And she just nails it, you know, about a, a, asked if there was a tree planted or a plaque. And indeed, his high school planted a tree in his honor. And there was a plaque there with a metal statue of a bass guitar because he played bass. And one of the kids had sculpted that for him as a gift to us, which was really cool. She was asked, like, what would identify him to the sitter? And at the time, I was actually working on my first book, Soul Shift, um, kind of journaling my experiences. So he asked the question, what would identify the deceased to the sitter? And she says, well, I feel like the person behind me is writing a book and it's about the person who passed. So there was just, you know, it was phenomenal. And then Later, we got to see each other face to face, and and that was pretty cool. So that was the first of my experiences, actually, in somebody's lab at a university setting. The next one was with the University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies, and that involved a researcher, uh, Dr. Emily Williams Kelly. She may have retired now, or she's getting ready to retire. I don't know if she has yet, but that's the same organization or department at the U UVA that was founded by Dr. Ian Stevenson many, many decades ago. Uh, and he was really interested in reincarnation research. He had done a lot of studies going to areas of South America, areas of Africa, and 
tribal areas and where he'd heard stories about young children claiming to have had a past life, remembering all these specific information, like my name was this, my wife was this name, I died this way, so-and-so was my uncle. And then he would find out the name of that tribe and everything. Then he'd drive, you know, hundreds of miles to this other tribe and ask all these questions. And many of these were validated as, you know, yeah, that there was a person here by that name. You know, they uh, were married to somebody that by that name and had that uncle and all that kind of stuff. So that's how the UVA uh, got involved with the Division of Perceptual Studies. That was the earliest stuff. And that work's still being carried on by uh, Jim Tucker. And then some of the people might recognize the name Dr. Bruce Grayson. He's there too. He does the near-death experience research and he's written books on that that are very, very good. There was a, I can't think of the name of it. Netflix had a special, I think it was called Life Afterlife or something like that. There's a documentary, but he's in there on that piece about the near-death experience research. And Jim Tucker's in there on the on the reincarnation research. But I've given you a lot of information other than what I started to talk about, which is Dr. Emily Williams Kelly and the mediumship research. So I just wanted to give context that she's part of this department that does a lot of other things related to afterlife evidence, really, when you boil it all down. Have you ever listened to the radio where the DJ calls listeners at random? That's what we're going to start to do here. Only it's me calling you to give you a free angel reading. Starting now, I'm going to call and bring through messages for one new listener every week. But first, I need your phone number. To sign up, all you have to do is rate this podcast five stars and give me your contact info over at theangelmedium.com backslash gift. Look for my name popping up on your phone and get ready for messages from your angels. Want to watch me make those calls? Follow me on Instagram at Angel Podcast. And her, her experiment was different. I believe, as I recall, she had six mediums provide uh, readings for people that they didn't know. So I was essentially a proxy sitter. And one of them was to give me a reading without knowing who I was and having this middleman in the, in there, you know, kind of. So there's more separation. And from, from a scientific perspective, that's considered more valuable the more levels of control you have. So we each of the six sitters, whoever they were, I don't know, we each received six readings. And then we had to grade those readings based on what the content was for which we thought was ours, which was number two, second closest, third closest and all. And then we sent them back to her. And then she had to uh, assess all that information and uh, determine how accurate it was in terms of that criteria. And I can't say that I know the exact result. Uh, I believe she was going to get that published in a journal paper. It may have been published already, but she did tell me, she says, um, the results are embarrassingly good. And in and in science, you know, that they're very hesitant to say this is proof or this is whatever that the most they'll say this is strong evidence. So those are the two uh, I was involved with. And then through the course of this, getting to know some other top mediums around the world, I've uh, since been acquainted with Gordon Smith in Scotland, who I think is among the very best. I think John Holland on the East Coast and Maureen Hancock are exceptional, too. Obviously, Allison's very good. Um but through the course of that, I met other researchers, too. So one of them is uh, Tricia Robertson, who was president of the Scottish Society of Psychical Research. 
And Tricia uh, did uh, a fairly comprehensive study a number of years ago with uh, Professor Archie Roy. Now, Archie Roy was, I mean, at the top pinnacle of scientists in the UK at that time, probably like a Stephen Hawking's would have been viewed here in the States or, you know, at a very high level. He was an astrophysicist, but he was open-minded and he had an interest in this field. So he and Tricia had put together a very rigorous study. It's it's almost too complex to explain, but essentially they had sitters go into a room and just sit in a seat without being assigned a seat. And underneath each seat was a number, but they didn't know which number they would be assigned to. It would just be a matter of where they sat. And so they brought in these mediums and the mediums are in another room and they would have to give a reading for someone of a number, not even knowing who it is, you know, and they did very well with this. In fact, Tricia said, you know, the results are millions again, uh, millions to one against chance. The one example I liked the best was that Gordon Smith was on the media participating in this, and he had to give the reading by a microphone from another room. And he said, whoever's number 19 or, you know, whatever number he said, I believe lives on Christmas Cottage. And that that turned out to be true. There was some place where there was Christmas Cottage Road or whatever was right. So that was pretty remarkable. And then um, a spinoff from the University of Arizona is Dr. Julie Beichel had founded something called the Winbridge Research Center. They've done some of the most meticulous work, and they continue to in this area, uh, studying meetings under up to quintuple blinded protocols and have generated results that basically she can make the statement that under con controlled conditions without any sensory cues at all, Meebs have demonstrated the ability to share pertinent, specific information about discarnate individuals. So she's talking in science speak there. <laughs> but I think that conveys the message that she found compelling evidence that, that it works. But she's done other research, too. One I really like, I think she's studied the effect of a good mediumship reading on grieving people. And so what her determination there was through the course of that research is that you know, it's not, she's not saying don't have therapy, but she's saying therapy plus a really good mediumship reading is far more impactful to a grieving person than therapy alone. Uh, and I would totally concur with that because I've co-founded an organization called Helping Parents Heal that now has 26,000 members worldwide, 175 affiliate chapters. And we have a conference every other year that draws about a thousand people. And through the people I've observed, that is true. There are a number of elements to the healing process, but that hope element's a big one. And that comes from people being open to afterlife evidence, such as medium communications and other information as well. That's amazing. And that's just such incredible work that this planet needs and, and parents, obviously, who've lost a child, especially. I'm wondering, with that uh, organization too, do you help the parents understand how to connect with their children on the other side in their own intuition and help them kind of continue that relationship on? So um, our organization is there. We're non-dogmatic. We're not tied to any specific religion or we're not trying to push anything like that, but we are spiritually open. We embrace people from all backgrounds. Um, and part of it Part of our organization is geared toward just having these folks get together and be able to meet other people in the same boat because that helps heal. But we also have presenters at our conference and on Zoom meetings and in local meetings to cover a variety of things. And one of those is how to directly connect. Right. 
So, you know, um, a medium Suzanne Wilson has done that. Suzanne Giesman has done that. Uh, others, you know, have done that. Um, I can give you an example after Brandon passed. My actually first experience of any kind that happened with me, I made a direct connection before, even before my uncle gave me that message. So I wanted a direct connection. I went into a, a darkened room, which was actually a walk-in closet, turned off the light in total darkness, sat there quietly, quieted my mind, and, and in a prayerful way, asked for a connection with my son. And I waited a while, and before long, in my mind's eye, I actually saw a figure of, I saw his face, like scrolling across like this, and it was smiling and joyful, and I felt glowing, like glowing, which was great. But then right after that, I saw a symbol, and it was a cross with an oval loop at the top, and I thought, well, I've seen those, but I don't really know what they mean. So it was kind of like a puzzle. So after I, after I had that experience, I went to my computer, I Googled cross with oval loop, found out it's an Ankh, which is the oldest cross of human history, going back to the ancient Egyptians 5,000 years ago. And the real important piece is that I found out the, the lower portion of the cross represents physical life. The oval loop represents eternal life. Mm. So I got a coded message, I feel, that told me my son's joyful and he's in eternal life. Now, had I already known what that symbol meant, then I could have dismissed it as my subconscious trying to make me feel good. But this, you know, having an analytical side to me was very helpful because it's like, okay, I had to go figure out what that meant. And I was told, and that gave me the meaning for the experience and it felt right. So that's one way people can do it is sit down in a quiet place, close your eyes, ask for a visit, ask to visit. You know, you could do guided meditations. Another experience I had, um, and I recommend this to people to try before going to bed at night, ask for a visit while you're asleep. And as an equally important, ask to remember it because it's, you can have these, how often have you woken up and, and you had this vivid dream or something? And then it's like an hour later, you forgot what it was. So in this case, I did that one night. And while I was in a dream state or, you know, that altered state, I suddenly saw Brandon and it was more vivid than waking reality. I've only had this happen once where it was that kind of a dream, at least with him. I had it another time with an aunt. But it was as vivid, if not more vivid than waking reality. He was in a room that was totally white, three white walls. But the fourth wall where it would have been is infinity, like the rest of the universe. It was just crazy. But it was a beautiful glowing light room. He's sitting there like he's sitting on a countertop wearing jeans, uh, a black rock, rock and roll T-shirt and skater type tennis shoes, which he used to wear. And I'm so excited to see. And I'm like, Brandon. I'm so excited and so happy to see you. Let me go get mom. Let me go get Stu. Let me get Steve, your brother. And I said, I missed you so much since you died. And then he responded to me with another puzzle. He said, I didn't die. My father died. And then I was left with that to mull that over. And so I'm like, what did that mean? It was about a week later, his buddy, Stu, who had tried to resuscitate him on the mountain, came by. And I told him about the dream. And then as soon as I told him, Pam, I knew what it meant. I'm like, oh, he meant he didn't die because life goes on. He still exists. He's just in a different form and then in another realm. But his father, me, I died inside. But that transformed me into a new person and put me on a new path. So I was the old me died and I have a new me now going forward. But that dream visit can be very impactful and people can have that, especially if you overthink or you're too frantic or too grieving too hard. 
that can make it hard to connect in another way, or even with a mediumship reading, you know, you have to be at a more peaceful place. And sometimes when you're in a sleep, you can get to that place. A hundred percent. I'm wondering, um, and Spirit's just asking to ask you this question, what is your relationship with Brandon now? Like, do you connect with him? Do you spend time with him in like quiet solitude once a week? Or do you just kind of like let him come to you? What does that look like? A little of both. You know, I think about him every day. And in my prayers every night, he's there. I'm always, you know, prayerful of him for him. I, he touches in a lot because I know so many mediums, they're always giving me one thing or another. In fact, I can give you an example there. I recently met, well, there's a medium in Phoenix named Michelle Claire. We're good friends. And we had met another medium for dinner one night, Farrah Gibson. And Farrah, I'd never really gotten to meet before other than just in passing. And we're sitting there waiting for, meal hadn't even been served yet. So we're just talking randomly. And I'd mentioned that Brandon played bass guitar. She says, okay, he's here. He says um, that his new one had an extra string. I'm like, okay, yep, that makes sense. He, you know, he had a four-string bass, but three months before he died for his birthday, we got him a new bass. It was a five-string bass. So that's a pretty obscure piece of information that not many people would be able to guess. Then she said, and he shows me, why are you taking strings off a guitar? Are you restringing it or something? Well, I'd been in Prescott, Arizona two days before with another friend, and I didn't even know she owned a guitar, but we were walking downtown, and we go into a music store, and she asked the guy, do you restring guitars? And he says, oh, yeah. I said, you don't need to do that. I'll do it for you, because I play guitar. I just So we bought a, a set of strings, go back to her place. I, re- I took all the strings off her guitar and restrung it. So I get that kind of stuff. Now, most people don't get that because they don't know all these mediums, but yeah. I get my own things, too. And sometimes I'll just feel like I'll think about him. I'll feel like this rush come through me. Um, I've been told he's my teacher. And in a way, I'm my dad's teacher. So I almost feel like he's an old, a really old soul and advanced based on the type of person that he was, that he was very giving, very empathetic. He embraced people who weren't popular, um, tried to lift them up. He didn't care about how he was viewed in the world or accolades or any of that he just wanted to be himself and those are all characteristics i see of somebody who's advanced and probably doesn't need to be here for a long time um and i think when i do writing i actually compose songs and things too i think he's helped me with a few songs uh, that are pretty impactful yeah that's amazing yeah i want to ask you a couple more questions when it comes to the research um, just having been around mediumship for so long with your dad and um, then after the passing of Brandon, I'm just wondering when you look at research and the science behind everything, where do you think that they might be able to take this within our lifetime? Like, what are they talking about or what's the end game there? Well, the, the, the really sad part is that mainstream science has very little to do with this because they're still stuck in the concept of materialism as a philosophy or a model. A physicalism is another name for it. And that's the idea that the physical world and matter is what's real and the brain generates consciousness. So when the body and brain dies, there's no way that you can have life after death because the brain creates consciousness. But there are some some really smart people out there, some smart researchers like Bernardo Castrop is one and, and, uh, Hoffman, I can't think of his first name right now, Don Hoffman, 
those guys are pro proponents of a theory called idealism, which goes back to really the quantum physics work done by Max Planck and some of the early 20th century scientists who first discovered the some of the phenomena contained within um, that field, quantum physics, that basically, for example, the observer effect demonstrates that mind affects matter. So what idealism says, or other, there are other philosophies too, that basically say consciousness is primary. It's not secondary. It came first before matter. Matter is a byproduct of consciousness. So consciousness is outside of physics. It's outside of the, the physical world or, or world of measurements per se. So, and they can't, there's no way to explain how consciousness could work just by the brain model alone. So um, that's really the first hurdle is to get mainstream science to at least look into these things because they're so stuck in materialism. They, they'll they say, you know, that's pseudoscience. That's not real science. So the people that do it are few and far between. They're brave souls who risk their careers sometimes. And like in the case of Winbridge, they're doing it on donations. They they aren't funded, you know, really to any extensive measure. There, there is a man in, in Vegas um, who's founded something called the, I think it's the Bigelow Institute. And he's fund, he's put his own money because he's, I think, a billionaire, but he's putting millions of dollars into this just because universities aren't really looking at it very much. The ones I've mentioned before are the handful that do. But uh, Bigelow is, you know, putting his money where his mouth is. He wants to know the truth. He wants to know more about it. And he's put funds out there for people to write articles and do research and that kind of thing. So where it should go, I mean, taxpayers are paying for universities doing research. They should demand that this be looked into, yeah. you know. And at the end of the day, from my perspective, it's already been proven to me. I mean, I lived it day to day. I don't really need that. But yeah. I think other people do. And more analytically minded people do. Um, so I would like to see more research done. And I'd like to be, see it more refined in terms of at some point, you're going to get to a point where it's like, okay, this does exist. This phenomenon exists, you know, and find out more about it. Because really, what's the most important thing that people want to know in life? What happens after we die? You know, right. and what about my loved ones who have passed before me? If you just bury your head in the sand and and follow along, you know, the way our culture is, we deny death. Everybody's got to be young. We only show youthful people on TV. You know, death is a bad word. And Eastern cultures embrace older people. They embrace death as part of life, the life cycle. I think we'd be much healthier and happier if that was the case. If you look at the happiness ratings around the world, we're not at the top anymore. <laughs> not at all. Right. You know, um, I, I don't know what his first name is. Is his name Bigelow? Because he's one of the most fascinating people. Like, you know, when people ask that question, if you could talk to or have dinner with three people in the world who are living today, who would it be? He's like top on my list. His last name's Bigelow. I can't remember his first, but I think it's the Bigelow Institute name. It's after his last name, but you could Google it after we're done. He's fascinating for those listening who don't know. Um, I don't go into conspiracies or, or anything. I just don't like the energy of it. I don't go into aliens and all that, but he studied the alien phenomenon of just like UFOs and the military seeing different things. And he was the one who got closest to that, I think had different like contract relationships to study it with the government um, or the military. And then he switched focus 
And some say he just wanted to know, uh, he's trying to figure out how to extend consciousness beyond death, I think is his ultimate goal with the Bit Bigelow Institute, but they're looking at consciousness and how it works and trying to, to really figure it out. So it's wildly fascinating from my perspective, because I would just love to know the mechanics behind it all and, and where they're going with this, but yeah, and I also think that on that website, the Bigelow Institute website, they have some of the most advanced information on consciousness because they have like this contest, if I remember correctly, where they have different people writing papers on consciousness and looking right. at it. I think you can read those papers on the website. You can. They have them as PDFs, I believe. Yeah. Someone encouraged me. They had something involving mediums recently, but I found out about it too late to apply. But someone just encouraged me to um, submit some excerpts from my book because they're starting a magazine now and they might want to publish those as articles. Oh, that's fabulous. That's amazing. Yeah. I've actually, I, my publisher's doing a great job um, and they've gotten me a publicist who's had um, three different sec pieces of my book published as articles in magazines. So amazing. One, one's called Eden Magazine. I'm in that current episode right now, or at least a piece of my book. So that's kind of nice. Yeah. That Who's your publisher? It's uh, Bear & Company, Inner Traditions. They're in Vermont. And uh, they've got, I don't know exactly their size, but they got to be one of the top five, in at least in spiritual room, probably top two or three for that. And I, I bet they're top 10 overall. That's amazing. But, uh, yeah, Inner Traditions. Um, yeah. And then my imprint is called here. Oh, yeah. Rochester, Vermont. So I want to go into some more about your dad. This was fascinating. So here you are. Did your dad do this the entire time that you were a kid? I've got a 12-year-old, so this is kind of good insight to how she feels probably about her mom doing this. But um, you got to meet Mae West and different people. Yeah. So. Um, where it came on late in life for you, it actually came on real early in life for my dad. My, I had interviewed my grandmother after my dad had passed. She said she saw the first signs of it at the age of three. He would often know like when their grandparents were coming over and they didn't have, they lived in rural Ohio. They didn't have um, telephone. They didn't have a phone. They didn't have TV or radio or anything. But really the breakout event for him was when he was five years old, he was taken to the Columbus children's hospital for corrective surgery on his eyes because he was born cross-eyed and after the surgery his eyes were cupped and bandaged and they had actually tied him down to a bed because they didn't want him messing with the bandages this nurse came by and felt sorry for him and said i'll let you up if you promise not to take off the bandages and he agreed so she went on her rounds and came back and found him catching throwing a ball against the wall and catching it and think oh my god he's taken off the bandages but he hadn't so that was even more scary to her. So then she brought these doctors in to witness that. And then they put him in a bed and had one stand at the foot of the bed and another doctor in the hallway saying, okay, who's in front of you now? And he would get it right every time. So that was kind of when they knew something was unusual. At the age of, I think it was 13, 12 or 13, he stumbled into a spiritualist camp and went into a, a session where a man was doing readings for people. And he had never seen anything like this before, but he had just had a, his best friend had just died recently in a car accident. 
Um, and they used to play in this creek and they had secret names for each other. And his secret name for his buddy was Paisy, which is a really weird name, Paisy. Anyhow, he goes into this church, this spiritualist camp, and um, this woman's handing out papers with pen pencils to write on. And he says, well, what do I write? And she says, well, if you don't have a specific question, just say a message, please, and write your name. So he did that. And then this minister that was doing the the, the process, uh, which is called blindfold billet, had taped and, and um, blindfolded himself. He got these messages and felt them and answered them one at a time. And he then he went to my dad and he says, I have a young man here uh, named Richard Ireland. Can you please speak up? And he said, yeah, he says, here, I'm here. He says, well, I have a young man on the other side who wants to connect with you. And he gives me a name and the name is Paisy. And my dad's like, at that moment, my dad was hooked. He's like, and then the man said, someday you'll be doing what I do. And then he actually mentored my dad. And then by the time my dad was an adult, he had even refined his abilities to a greater degree. He initially went into the Spiritualist Association of Churches and was like a traveling minister, and he would demonstrate phenomena all over the place. Eventually, later in 1960, he started his own uh, non-denominational church. He just he wasn't really into pounding dogma into people, but rather to have just an environment for learning and for people to observe and make up their own mind about what's true and what's real to them. And then he went into the secular world too, and, and did a lot of demonstrations of this in, in, a, in a variety of places. So yes, I got to meet Mae West when I was 19. She would have him come to her house or some, it depends. She had a couple of different places, but she would ha have him come there and do demonstrations for her friends. So he met, met other celebrities through that. And the only reason I know about the Eisenhower connection is because I have in my possession a card from Mamie Eisenhower to my father from 1956 when he married my mom, congratulating on him on behalf of her and the president. So that's my breadcrumb trail to asserting that uh, he probably read for them. Um, so yeah, I grew up with this stuff and it wasn't weird to me. It was normal. In fact, so much so that I just thought, oh, that's what it means to be psychic. You know, my dad's just over the top, unbelievable. And like, he'd show me some meet, I'd meet somebody else. He go, they're psychic. And I'm like, no, they're not. You know, And he'd say, Oh, my son, Mark, you're my son. Mark's very psychic. And I'm like, dad, I'm not psychic. Look at this. I, I can't do what you do, but I did have experiences, you know, and it yeah. wasn't, I think I just didn't really nurture them. But um, one time he had done a demonstration and he was done. He had to do another one in about an hour. He says, Mark, I'm, I'm tired. Uh, can you do this one for me? And facetiously, I stuck my hands up and I said, okay, give me the power. He stuck his hands on mine. And I was just joking, but energetically, I felt a change. He goes, okay, here's a test for you. Who's that man's, what's that man's name? And he just pecked out a stranger in an adjacent booth. And I just knew it. I said, Alan. And so someone else in our booth tapped the guy on the shoulder and said, what's your name? And the guy goes, what? He says, just tell us your name. He goes, Alan. So then I kind of knew what it felt like. I remember having a dream when I was like 18 or whatever. I had this girlfriend at the time and I dreamt that she was seeing another guy and I could, I saw his full physical description. I mean, how you describe him physically, but I knew his first and last name. So the next day I told her, I had this weird dream about you last night. It kind of made me jealous. And she said, well, tell me about it. I said, no, nah, it was just a dream. And she goes, no, please tell me. I said, well, the guy looked so tall. He looked this this color hair and his name was Bob Dooley. She goes, 
I dated a guy named Bob Dooley in Kansas when I lived there, and he looked exactly like that. So I've had stuff like that happen. It's just been more sporadic. Mm -hmm. um, and I think even more recently, this is probably one of the best ones. It's more of a mediumship connection. And again, I don't do this all the time, but sometimes I'll get these things. For, for a three-year stint, I was invited to speak to the spiritualist church in San Francisco called the Golden Gate Spiritualist Church. And I would do a talk, and I'd bring another medium friend, Tina Powers, with me, and she would give messages to the congregation. So before going this time, she says, hey, Mark, I think you're going to get a message. Will you share it if you get one? And I said, sure. But she kept hounding me about this over and over. I'm like, yes, Tina, I'll say it if I get it. And even walking in the church that day, she's like, Mark, if you get a message, will you share it? Yes. So I go into their healing room, sit quietly on a bench to a piano or an organ for half an hour, and just try and quiet my mind and meditate and prepare to do my talk. And while I'm sitting there, a name pops in. It was Max. But then immediately I got Maxine. Now, I didn't hear it. I didn't see it. It came to me like an idea or just a thought would drop in. I don't know how it works for you, but that's that's how I got it. So I went up, I gave my talk, and, it, and now this church was founded in 1924 by a woman named Florence Becker, who, by all accounts, was very similar to my dad and her abilities. Mm -hmm. And she passed away in 1970. So anyhow, at the end of my talk, I say, um, well, Tina made me promise that if I got anything, I'd share it. So I have to ask if the names Max or Maxine mean anything to anyone here. And the pastor of this church's jaw drops, and he's like, well... Max and Maxine were twins that were born to the church founder, Florence Becker. They were delivered stillborn, and they grew up in spirit on the other side. He says, I think we know who is here right now. And, and then at the end of the service, he says, I want to show you something. He took me upstairs and showed me a painting. I believe it was done by Florence Becker. It was a landscape, and it had a long winding road. He says, see those two little figures at the end of the road? That's Max and Maxine. So just to get you know, one of those names, which isn't a common name, would have been something, but to get them both and to have it be so pertinent to that church and that founder of that church is pretty crazy. Yeah. So I think it also, I think the reason Tina nudged me was because it was so subtle. And that's what people don't understand how subtle this can be. Your sensitivity has to be at a point where you can perceive this stuff and realize it's not your own thought, or at least be willing to explore that possibility. You know, we're saturated with media and smartphones and everything else. So we're just really distracted. I think that's why, you know, some people feel like they can't connect because it's being a subtle thing. You have to quiet yourself down, just like trying to connect the other ways we talked about before. That's incredible. So was there any time at which, like when you were younger, that you were embarrassed, you know, that your dad did this or um, or you didn't feel that way? No, I was proud of my dad, actually. Yeah. And um, I would take friends to see him. He would blow their minds. I mean, it was so funny. I, I remember there's one friend, he was completely skeptical. Now we're adults by this time, we're in our <laughs> 20s. And we take him and we, and the only reason I got him to go is because we set him up with a date. So it was a double date kind of thing. <laughs> so we get there, my dad, you know, he didn't know this guy from Adam. And so we get there and I said, well, Mike, just ask a question, anything. So Mike sends up a question and my and I wrote my dad a question. I said, Dad, Mike is my friend. Blow his mind. And that's all I wrote. <laughs> so my dad's going through these and he goes, oh, Mike Cusack. Uh, he goes, well, tell me about this girl. And he named the girl. He goes in Seattle. And Mike he didn't write anything about that. And I just see his face like turn white. And so anyhow, later on, I found out 
he said, well, he he was interested in this girl in Seattle and he just called her that day. Wow. So anyhow, Amazing. that's the kind of thing. I love to do that and blow friends' minds. And then I had other friends that were big believers and they, they, you know, they would go there for advice and direction and all that, which you provided. You know, I, I think I would get mad when skeptics would try and put him down or whatever uh, without even testing him or knowing him. But uh, for the mo- overall, I was proud of my dad. We were not the same person. I'm very practical. And he was very live by the moment kind of thing person. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm so glad that you came on today, Mark, to share your story. Um, your work is just incredible. Your new book is The Persistence of the Soul. And where can everybody find that? And where can people find you? Well, the easiest place to go is my website, which is markirelandauthor.com. That's Mark with a K, Ireland like the country, author markirelandauthor.com. And not only will you find the books there and all the links that you can buy them from Amazon in 11 different countries or Barnes and Noble or whatever, but I've got links to my dad's videos, including the 1971 Steve Allen episode. So all that stuff you can find there. And then I have a media link too. If people want to look at that Discovery Channel episode from when I was at the University of Arizona, they could see that. And then I have a, a short, like a 20, 25 minute documentary that some Arizona State University students, uh, journalism students did about my story a number of years ago. And that's on there too. So there's all kinds of stuff there, but that one place gets you all those other things. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here, Mark. Thank you for the work that you're doing in the world. I think it's so needed and so important and you're just such a blessing. Well, thanks for giving me a platform to share that. Of course. Friends, your angels asked me to do a little teaching here at the end of each episode in February about manifestation because they say that when it comes to you co-creating within your own life, you're missing a step that 98% of humanity is missing this step. So they want to give it to you. But first, I want to let you know something. I wish I would have called the Angel Reiki School, the Angel Reiki Mediumship School, but that name was too, too long, right? Um, Friends, the Angel Reiki School is not just a place where you learn Reiki energy healing. In fact, It's really not about learning energy healing at all. The Angel Reiki School is the place where you go to develop your gifts in mediumship, being able to bring through angel messages from the angels to other people, to learn Reiki and other energy healing modalities, and to learn how to, if you want, don't have to, a lot of people come through the Angel Reiki School simply to build out their gifts, to understand their gifts, develop their God-given unique spiritual gifts to the max. But a lot of people also come through the Angel Reiki School to develop a business of their own and to get that certification so that they know what they're doing when they're working with other people. Friends, an entire new uh, class of the Angel Reiki School begins March 1st online. If you are looking to go through the Angel Reiki School, now is the time. Sign up for a discovery call with me. The link is in the show notes below. I'm going to help you get where you want to be as a healer or with your own unique spiritual gifts in the Angel Reiki School. All right, friends, here is the deal when it comes to manifestation. Spirit is saying right now, they just keep flooding in this message that 98% of humanity 
looks to manifest, right? Like they want to manifest something. They know that they want to go in a direction. They get that clarity on that direction. They create the vision board. They see it within their mind. They're visioning it within their mind. And then they stop. That's where their efforts stop. And the angels say there is a huge piece to this puzzle that you are missing. So that piece is when you vision, you have this clarity, I want to do X. You get the vision, you create the vision board, whatnot. It doesn't stop there. That's when we activate our intuition even more. Um, Prayer as well. The angels always say prayer and intuition are really the same thing. They're both forms of communication with the other side. And when you activate that intuition, you're asking God, universe, source, what's the next step for me? What's this first step that I need to take in order to work towards this goal that I have for myself, my life, my family, um, my career, whatever it may be. And as you pray, you hear something back from the other side. And it's just a first step. All right. And When you hear this first step, what a lot of people do is ask the other side for more signs. We ask for like complete clarity, but it really is this first step that, you know, okay, we pray, we hear this back, do this. That first thing that we're supposed to go do is something that we choose to do or not with our own free will. So if you go act on it and you go do that one thing, what happens? As you're in the energy of actually doing what spirit asked you to do, you get the next piece of the puzzle. But you cannot get that next piece to the puzzle unless you take the first step. You pray, you hear back, go do this. And you're like, hemming and hawing, do I do it? Do I not? Do I do it? Do I not? Go do it. Your angels say, go do it. Because when you do it energetically, it opens you up to the next step after that. And when you take action on that next step, it opens you up to the next step after that. This is what I mean when I say that some people are either crawling, walking, or running with God universe source. For some people, it takes them six months to get up the courage to go do that one thing that they're they're hearing back in their prayers. Go do this. Takes them six months to have the courage to go do that. For some people, it takes an entire year. For some people, it takes 10 years for them to get the courage to go do that one thing. And then we look around, right? And I'm not blaming or shaming anybody. I'm just trying to give you an example so that the angels can communicate with you better. What happens is then we look around when things aren't happening for us and we go, why? God, why? Why isn't it happening for me? Why aren't things coming through for me? Because you are crawling with God. And sometimes we're not even moving. We're not even taking that first step. There are some people who learn, all right, I'm going to go in this direction. I've got this clarity. I want to write a book. Okay, God, universe, source, I've got the vision. I want to write the book. What's my first step? And the angels come in and say, or God, universe comes in as you're praying and says, go read this other book. 
Go take this class. Go talk to this person you know. Go send this email. Go ask this question. Go research this. And you go to yourself within your own mind. You go, nope, that's not the answer. And so you delay. There are some people who don't do that. There are some people when they get that prayer within their mind, that answer within their mind, they go, all right, I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go read that book. I'm going to go talk to that person. I'm going to go ask that question. I'm going to go send that email. I'm going to go make that phone call. And as soon as they do, they're in a new energy as they're taking the action. And as they're taking the action and they're in this new energy, they get a new piece of information. And they go, okay, God, what do I do now? And God, universe, source goes, go do this. So they go do it. And then they get to that next piece and they go, what do I do now? And they hear back through their prayers, go do this. And so they go do that. Friends, this is where people start running with God, universe, source. So five times a day, 10 times a day, a hundred times a week, they're following God's directives. They're not hemming and hawing. They're just following the loving, positive messages that they're receiving through their prayers, through their intuition. And so when I look at the energy of a person who goes, Julie, why isn't it happening for me? Versus other people who are running with spirit, what you're seeing is actually a mathematical number of these are how many directives one person has gotten from God universe source that they followed through on. And this other person over here has followed through on 5,000 within one year, whereas another person is waiting to take action on one. And again, friends, I'm not blaming, shaming, trying to create a negative energy within you at all. I'm trying to show you what happens when you're living a spiritual life and running with spirit. So I know this is a long enough intro. Listen to it a couple of times. I'm only going to leave it up in February. And I want you to pause right now and I want you to tune in and I want you to pray. And I want you to say, God, universe, source, what's my goal? Where am I going? And once you have clarity on that, ask, what's the first thing I need to take action on? What's the first thing I need to do? Go do that, friends. That is going to help you run with your angels, and it is going to take you to living a life far beyond your wildest dreams. You're going to be shocked. And I want you to write into me, and I want you to let me know when you start to see a difference in your life because you're following this method. I love you so much, friends. Have a beautiful, beautiful, blessed day, and I'll see you back here this week. Love you.